Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and Al Warren. Heard on KCB. 
106.5 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. And we are at the interview part of the show. Uh, joining us today, um, we have the author of a new book called Paratrooper of Fortune. It's the story of Ted B. Braden, Vietnam Condo, Com- Commando, CIA operative and Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. Drew Hurst Beeson, thank you for being here. Thanks, Al. Glad to be back. So, listen, Drew, could you get a longer name for a book? <laughs> uh, no, but I had to get it all in there. You know, on Amazon, you know as an author, Al, you got to get as much in as you can when they're searching for it. <laughs> I'll say, wow. <laughs> um, we were actually commenting, Julie and I, just before the show, we were looking through, and uh, this guy had quite the history that you're you're sort of talking about, this Ted B. Braden. Uh, I mean, Vietnam commando, uh, CIA operative, Congo mercenary. How, how do you get a job like that? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, with, with, with Ted Braden, he joined up to fight in World War II at the age of 16, lied about his age to, to, to get over there, and he fought in the Battle of the Bulge towards the end of World War II as a young guy. And then ever since then, he went on a, a really wild ride. And, he, and, you know, the military brought out this guy that he was the, 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 truly a super soldier. He just excelled in, in anything involving the military, uh, with, uh, in particular skydiving. He was a master skydiver. What, what he even says is a master parachutist, probably the best uh, person that ever lived as far as jumping out of a plane with something on your back that will save your life goes. So um, fascinating guy. Like I like to say, he's the most fascinating person most people have never heard of. So he sounds sort of like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Commando movie or whatever that was. You know. uh, what do you know about him and his mentality? So do you know why he was into this uh, Commando operative sort of thing? Like what... Do you know anything about his family or history like that? Yeah, I found out quite a bit by you know digging in really deep and researching him, finding you know finding out who his his mother was, because his mother got divorced from his father. Pretty, you know, I think maybe when 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 Ted was two years old, he was born in uh, Toledo, Ohio. That's where he comes from, and uh, so finding her was really big. And because her name had changed, obviously, and then I found uh, one of Ted Braden's nephews who who gave me a lot of background on on the family. Uh, you know, his with his first, you know, with his uh, biological father, he was an only child. And then, uh, you know, obviously, like I said, his mother got divorced, but his mother was also an only child, and her mother had died during childbirth. So, um, after his parents split up, Ted would stay a lot with his uh, new new uh, stepfather, who was pretty abusive towards him, and I, uh, not really bad, but you know, this is back in the you know the early 1930s, so it was kind of old school. And him being the stepchild and, you know, just kind of he got the brunt of it. And he had a, a, a half-brother that was treated a lot better because it was the biological son, obviously, of his stepfather. And his mom would take long trips with her father and just, you know, leave the boys at home with their with their dad. And, uh, you know, just Ted was always getting in trouble, getting spanked a lot and just always being disciplined. And I think that's kind of starts shaping him, you know, at least making him want to leave home at a, at a young age and go risk his life to fight World War II was a, was a better option for him at the time than to stay with the stepdad. So I think that started kind of molding his mind. And then I think being exposed to the combat at such an early age started to, you know, he probably had really bad PTSD, uh, which obviously back then they would just call it, you know, shell shock. You know, they didn't even have that term back then, but I think he had that. 
And, uh, you know, coupled with extremely high IQ, uh, we don't know exactly what his IQ was, but he had a, uh, what they call a, a general technical score in the Army, which is kind of a good gauge of IQ, and he had a, a 150 general technical score. And you can kind of extrapolate out what the, his IQ would be from that, which would be really high. I mean, uh, one guy that, that oversaw him when he was uh, in confinement at Port Dick said that's the, the second highest GT score he'd ever seen. So, we're, you know, he's a criminal mastermind, truly is, a very high IQ and just a propensity to uh, to risk his life and come out alive every time he does it. Every time he, he throws something down to see if he's going to live through it or not, he manages to survive and, and, and live through it. So, uh, you know, it's a fascinating person. Hmm. When you say criminal mastermind, so what do you, how do you tie him to being a criminal then? Like what, did did he have a past that was um, sort of criminal? Did he, did he steal things, break into things? Like what was, I'm trying to get to that part of it because it sounds like he was capable from his military experience and mercenary that, and you said skyjacking. So he's capable of doing maybe the physical feats. Um, but do you think he was capable of doing the criminal part of it? Absolutely. He had the, 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 the ingenuity. He had a ton of ingenuity. So as far as the D.B. Cooper heist goes, that took a lot of ingenuity. Of course, you know, when D.B. Cooper hijacked that plane back in November of 1971, he used a briefcase bomb. Now, most people contend that that bomb was probably a fake. But no one had thought about this before. And as the FBI said at the time, that was a game changer. You know, there had been a few hijacked planes, but no one ever came up with this concept of a briefcase bomb. And uh, that's what Ted Braden is so unique about. You know, the guys that were commandos over in Vietnam with him said he had the ingenuity to have come up with that in the first place. Not just the skills to pull off a, a nighttime jump like that in the bad weather. They, he had that all day long in spades, but he had the ingenuity and the creativity and the brain to have ever come up with a briefcase bomb and the whole shenanigan in the first place to, to, to hijack an airplane and, and, and demand a $200,000 cash ransom, strap it to his body and jump out you know, somewhere over Washington State. Uh, that, that's the main thing they point to. I mean, totally aside from the, 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 the skills, because he had the like I said, all the skills necessary, but he had the brain to have come up with it in the first place. And as far as criminality goes, in the first part of his life that I can tell, there's nothing, you know, not any really bad offenses or anything like that. But when he was over in Vietnam, he would he was always said to be working the black market to make extra money. Because Ted Braden was, you know, he was a private first class. He liked that, but he always needed more money. He was always looking to make money on the side. He would do it in the black market trading maybe involved in some drug running through a smaller level it was highly speculated and uh it's, it's him it's just it was all about money and then later in his life after the you know the cooper skyjacking there you know were some really creative uh, uh uh crimes that he got involved with and one was stealing meat fish and meat from a from a warehouse in massachusetts i believe and then he you know drove it down to arizona he was a long-haul truck driver and uh he got you know, a lot of trouble with that. He would arrange for his trailer to be, you know, stolen, and he would just call it in as stolen. But he would, you know, be the guy that arranged to have somebody go steal his load, stuff like that. So you know, you see more of the uh, more common kind of type criminal offenses after the TV Cooper event. But you know, but in the before that, it's more you know covert type black market stuff in Vietnam and things like that. But he definitely had a criminal mind. He's not a clean rap sheet guy whatsoever. So, Drew, do you do we know what what caused the switch between being this 
this young man living at home and seeing and being involved in quite an abusive um, upbringing to going to serve country and um, with the kind of the values that that brings to then switching into this heightened criminality and then taking, you know, allegedly taking over the plane? I'm not really sure. It's something, I, I think he saw that the, that the military, when, when he decided to leave home because it wasn't a good situation, um, and he got in, over to World War II and he got in, into combat and, and specifically into being a paratrooper, where, where they start, start you out, he, I think he loved the adrenaline of it from what I can tell, and he loved to do it over and over, and I think he liked the adrenaline of combat, and uh, he, he, he honed all those skills first, and then I think later in his life, he knew that he had these skills better than most people ever did, so he wanted to couple that into making money. For him, it was all about money. He didn't fight for glory or for country. He fought for money, and he wanted to extrapolate those skills that he had into money any way he could do it which is why he you know, eventually went and fought as a mercenary down in the Congo after uh, going uh, deserting from Vietnam. And he just didn't think of anything about it. He just decides to desert Vietnam as an active uh, combatant in the war. He just leaves to go fight as a mercenary because he heard the mercenaries were making more money. So it sounded good to him. He just takes off without any fear of retribution from the government, which is, is one of the most fascinating things. And, uh, you know, what I contend is that he had a uh, very powerful friend that he first met in World War II that later became a general um, named John Singlob. And this guy was uh, in the OSS during World War II, uh, highly decorated. Uh, you know, he was uh, the, you know, the birth. He was really one of the forefathers of the, what became the special forces uh, in the in the army. And. Uh, and, and Ted knew him from World War II, and he later ran into him while he was while Ted was stationed in Germany in a parachute club called the Golden Arrows, and it was an Army jumping team. And uh, John Singlob caught up with him there, and they would have long conversations about how to do better combat, how to jump, you know, jump, you know, do a free fall from a plane with all that equipment strapped to you was one of the things he was mainly interested in. They did jump out, you know, paratroopers jumped out during World War II with all their equipment on, but they were doing what was called a static line jump. It was a lower altitude jump where it's more controlled, but no one had ever done a free fall, like a true high up free fall uh, with all their equipment on them. So, you know, Singlob was part of that, and he knew that Ted Braden had all these kind of skills. And uh, I think that's how Ted Braden wound up. Uh, he went over to fight in Vietnam with Project Delta, and then that got absorbed into what uh, unit that's known as MACV-SOG, and that stands for Materials Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group. And that sounds really benign, but those that, that particular unit was the elite of the special forces in Vietnam. They were called the Black Ops. These were the guys that went over into, into Laos and Cambodia where they weren't supposed to be because of the Geneva Accords. So if they ever got caught over there, the U.S. government had to have what they called plausible deniability, where, you know, you were, they called it sterile, the soldiers did, where you didn't have any identification on you, no dog tags, nothing on your weapons, anything. You had to be complete, your uniform, nothing that would identify you as a U.S. soldier. And if you got caught over there, it wasn't pretty. I mean, because as soon as those guys hit the ground over in a place like Laos, they were being tracked. And these guys, and these guys were, uh, they would do uh, prisoner snatches. They would do wiretaps. Actually, Ted Braden's group, it was called Team Colorado, and Ted was uh, his designation was called the the uh, the one zero, which was the team leader. And you would have three Americans, 
and then you would have three or four indigenous troops, which they called mountain yards, which is a French term for like the you know mountain people of the region that the U.S. Special Forces would train in Vietnam. But Ted was the team leader, and his team, which was Team Colorado, like I said, was the first team to do a successful wiretap of uh, North Vietnamese transmission out of Laos. And uh, really dicey work over there. And like I said, you didn't want to get caught. Um, if it looked like you were going to be a, a, what they call a positive capture, sometimes they would even order the U.S. troops to go in there and bomb you before they could capture you alive. So the guys that signed up to be in this group were crazy. I mean, they knew it, it, at the minimum you were going to be wounded if you signed up to be in this group, and most likely maybe 50-50 that you get killed, um, probably the you know, highest casualty rate. But they inflicted far more casualties on the enemy. I think it's uh, it, as far as um, the U.S. soldier versus enemy kills, they have the highest ratio ever. Uh, so just being in that group puts you above all the rest. But going back to John Singlob, he was the chief of uh, the MACB SOG unit in 1965 when Ted was in that unit from uh, 65 and uh, through the end of six, 1966. So I believe that friendship with this person was his get-out-of-jail-free card in, in a lot of situations. Right. So it, it's a fascinating thing. Well, you know, and with the case of D.B. Cooper, uh, maybe review the basics of what it was, because I'm realizing now that it's 48 years ago. It's going to be the 50th anniversary next November. Um, th so there's a lot of young people that don't really know uh, what this is about. So what was D.B. Cooper, or as you say, Braden, um, known for doing? Yeah, D.B. Cooper is a folk hero. A lot of people hear that name, and uh, and, and uh, hopefully we'll keep it alive for a lot longer. But in, in Thanksgiving Eve of 1971, a man walked into the uh, the Portland airport and uh, got a got a $20 ticket to Seattle. And uh, he was carrying he was wearing a, a, a black tie and a suit and he was carrying an anti-shea case. And he calmly boarded boarded the plane. And, uh, you know, all the other passengers got on. I think uh, Cooper was one of the last. He actually bought his ticket under the name Dan, Dan Cooper, not D.B. D.B. was a media screw-up when they started looking for him. It got, it got confused somewhere with an AP report, so the name D.B. just stuck. But he actually bought the ticket under the name Dan Cooper. He did not sign his ticket. The ticket agent did. I mean, early on, people thought he signed it himself. He did not. It was the ticket agent. But calmly boards the plane takes a seat towards the back and uh, before the plane takes off, one of the stewardesses w walks by and he, he hands her a note and this, uh, the stewardess just thought she was being hit on. And he, he says, ma'am, I think you really need to look at that note. And she opens it up and says, you know, I'm hijacking this plane. And uh, so that got her attention. So she uh, goes forward and tells the cockpit what's happening and what his, what his demands are. Um, plane takes off and, you know, and then the, uh, the cockpit calls it into the, the Northwest Orient Airlines was the name of the airline. So the code name of this case was called Norjack. And so the pilots called in to the to their powers to be and said, hey, what well, this guy's going to is hijacking the plane. And you know, actually, sorry, I got the most important part. When he after she read the note, he showed her the bomb. He opens up the briefcase and it looks like three sticks of dynamite. And to her, it looks real enough. Right. So uh, she obviously informs him, you know, he's got a bomb in a briefcase, you know, and they they didn't know what to do. That was, like I said, a game changer. So uh, they call it in and they say, yeah, just uh, we'll meet his demands. What does he want? And, you know, he had written down that he wanted $200,000 in cash. He wanted 
four parachutes, two front chutes, and two back chutes. So obviously you can see the genius in that. It's, it's making them think he's going to take a hostage with him. So it make them think twice about rigging the parachutes. So um, they meet his demand. So the, the, the plane uh, lands in Seattle, and then they, uh, they bring on the money. And, uh, you know, he, he's a happy camper when he sees that money. So, uh, he, they, they're supposed to bring him, bring it to him in a, in a certain type of bag. They didn't bring that. So, uh, he immediately takes a, a pocket knife out of his pocket, uh, cuts some shrouds off of one of the two parachutes that he's not going to use and he, and he proceeds to tie it around his body. And this is after, sorry, after the plane takes off out of Seattle. And, uh, you know, long story short, he winds up jumping out of the plane with all the money and he's never seen again. And people have been searching for him ever since that day. Obviously, a large ground search. Um, no one ever found anything until uh, a young boy in 1980, his name was Brian Ingram, was near a place they called Tina Bar outside of uh, Vancouver, Washington, along the Columbia River, finds some of D.B. Cooper's money. He found about $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's money buried into the sand. He was, they were building a campfire. Uh, it was wintertime. And his father said, hey, that looks like a good spot over there to start digging. And the boy starts digging with his hand and says, hey, Dad, look what I found. I mean, there's this cash. And they, uh, you know, call it in later and find out that that was part of D.B. Cooper's loot. They matched the serial numbers. It's all legit. So that turned into be just as big of a mystery as what happened or that who D.B. Cooper was, was how this money wound up on that beach in 1980. It still had the rubber bands around the bundles. The money was deteriorated, but the rubber bands were still intact, which is crazy enough. So that opened up just another Pandora's box of how did the money get there because they tested that a million ways uh, and it just couldn't have gotten there by natural means is what they finally determined. There's just no way that that it, you know he did Cooper jumped into the woods and that money somehow got into the water and wound up on that beach. They they just know by the way that river runs up onto that bank that it's impossible. Somebody had to have planned it there. They just don't know when and where and who. So you have two things going on now with DB Cooper. Who DB Cooper was. And how that money got there. So that's where and, the case still sits today. And if we're thinking that, um, I mean, you've, you've obviously done a lot of research and linked this to um, Ted Braden, but I'm just thinking in terms of Ted's experiences, it almost seems like he thought he was invincible. Because you've got somebody who's managed to escape a poor family background. You've got somebody who survived and been quite traumatized by World War II. You've got somebody who then has gone into elite forces and and then just walked away from it without any thinking about the the kind of consequences of that from the government and then potentially entered into something like this what what do you think happened then do you think his he he hit his demise or absolutely not and you know early on when when the db cooper case happened the fbi and a man named Ralph Himmelsbach, which was running the case at the time, they really tried to make a hard sell on the fact that D.B. Cooper was a no-pool, that he died, he, he, he crashed into a tree and died, and, 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 and his parachute never opened. That's why no one ever found it. Or he, or he drowned in the water, or he, maybe he landed straight in the water. So they really made a hard push because I think one of the reasons was they couldn't find him after such a large ground search in all those woods. And, you know, they think the drop zone was somewhere around Ariel, Washington. And this it, it, that's... Some people dispute where the actual drop zone was, but you really can't because you know the the jet was jets were trailing that airplane. They had it on uh, on radar. You know they're pretty sure that it was pretty close to the town of Ariel, Washington. So uh, I think the FBI was a little embarrassed. So they tried to uh, make out Cooper to be an inexperienced skydiver, 
And they, they said that because D.B. Cooper chose a military parachute. They brought two different sets of, I mean, they, like I said, they brought four different parachutes on, two front and two back. The ones that go in the front are reserve chutes. And Cooper said, you know, just by using that language, two front and two back, that's not what a skydiver would say. But actually an old military guy, when talking to people that don't skydive, would say that. But they were, the FBI was, you know, from minute one trying to make this case that he was inexperienced and therefore died. And they said that, you know, they had he had got to choose from either a military shoot for his main shoot or a sport shoot, which was more steerable. Um, you know, they said, you know, why, you know, why would an experienced skydiver choose this old cat? You know, this old, I, I think he would refer to it as this this, this old tank of a parachute. It's called a, an NBA, which just uh, stands for a Navy Backpack Eight with a C9 canopy, which is also a military canopy. And they said that's that shoot is just not steerable. That's an old an old rig, you know, like. Uh, you know, an experienced jumper would have never cho- chosen that. But, you know, in the years later, and when you talk to more skydivers, they said that was absolutely the correct parachute because, number one, you're coming, you're jumping out of a jet at a higher altitude. And even though D.B. Cooper knew exactly what flight settings to tell him, he told him what altitude to fly out, the, the flap settings for the wings and the speed to go, he knew more about the plane than the pilots did, um, which is shocking. It was a Boeing 727, which had an aft stare. And Cooper knew that you could jump out of that stair, and he also knew that the plane could take off with that stair down. And he actually got, when they were leaving, before they left Seattle, he got in an argument over it. Like he said, because Cooper wanted the plane to take off with the stair already down, so he wouldn't have to worry about it once the plane got airborne. He wouldn't have to worry about lowering that aft stair. And the pilot said, no, we're not going to do it. And they, they were like, it can't be done. He, and Cooper knew it could be, but he wound up relenting and just say, okay, we and, uh We'll take off with the stair up, and then obviously he, with some assistance of one of the flight attendants, got that stair down. But anyway, back to the uh, the FBI, they were always trying to say he was a he, he did he was an inexperienced jumper. Well, Tina Mucklow, who was the flight attendant that sat by D.B. Cooper the longest, when she brought the parachutes to him, said that she handed him an instruction card for it. And he just tossed it to the side, and she also saw him put on that skydiving ring. Said he put it on like he had done it a thousand times before. And uh, another thing that I found out from one of Ted Brady's jumping partners from the Golden Arrows from the early 60s named Al Tire, who I know really well now, who jumped with him a lot in these competitions all through Europe, and I asked him specifically about that parachute, the NBA. He said, we used, we were used to, to uh, pilot emergency shoots. He said, we could steer an NBA all day long. He goes, we would have no trouble steering an NBA from what we were used to back in the early 60s. He said, they didn't have sport parachutes when we started. He goes, so for us, that's nothing. And a lot of people read that in the book, and they were fascinated by it because the FBI was always trying to make this hardcore play for Cooper. Didn't know how to jump. He chose the wrong shoot. He's dead. And uh, now we're figuring out that not only was the jump survivable, most people do tend to believe now that he did survive. So, uh, And honestly, I do. <laughs> <laughs> what, what tied you to him? Like how, when you were doing the research, what, what, um, what brought you to him and – and tied him to this whole case? Well, I've always loved the case ever since it was on Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, I think that was in 86 or so. You know, the Robert Stack, the whole thing, I was just fascinated by the case. You know, Stevie Cooper was a spoke hero, and I never set out to try to solve it or anything like that. Um, and then I got rekindled with it when a guy named Galen Cook would come on Coast to Coast AM and talk about a suspect that he liked named uh, William Gossett. And I thought he was a great suspect. I thought, yeah, I think this guy's on to something. You know, uh, Galen Cook was an attorney, very articulate. So I just thought, yeah, this sounds like like you could be the guy. 
and uh, you know, just rekindled me with DB Cooper. So I was uh, reading one of the uh, the uh, DB Cooper message boards where the guys are on. One's called the Drop Zone, which is a skydiving site, but a lot of Cooper guys get on it. And the other one's called the DB Cooper Forum, uh, where, where the real hardcore guys there. A guy named Bruce Smith that wrote a book called DB Cooper and the FBI. I know Bruce, really good guy, really great book. And, uh, you know, real hardcore Cooperites, they call them, you know, talking about the case on there. And they were talking about Ted Braden on on those forums. I never really would would comment on that. I would just read them. You know, I was this warrior reading all the good stuff, but I didn't want to jump in. I just wanted to read what they were talking about. And they were talking about Ted Braden. And what really caught my attention with them is they said that two of the special forces legends, and one's called, uh, Sergeant Billy Waugh, and another one's name is John Plaster, who were also in MACB SOG in Vietnam, highly decorated guys. I mean, uh, they're just, I mean, Rambo is not even close to these guys, what these guys did back then, just crazy stuff. And they were like, and, and they said, we think Ted Braden was Stevie Cooper. And I thought, whoa, like, you know, we're in this, this, this legendary league already. But when you ask us who D.B. Cooper was, we point over to this maniac named Ted, Ted Braden. And I was like, I was stuck right there. I was like, I got to know more. You know, if the Special Forces guys say this guy did it, you have my attention. And they, and what's more interesting about that is they never give you a number two or number three guy. Plenty of guys over in the Special Forces of Vietnam could have made that jump. But they never give you, well, it could have been Ted or it could have been Bill Collins or whoever. They never say that. They always go to Ted Braden. And they never really say, well, we know this for sure, or there's a little, there's always a little bit more mystery around it. Um, but that's what fascinated me to him when the other special forces guy said him, 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 only him. So I was yeah. locked in at that point, tunnel vision. So now, do you have anything in particular that ties him to it um, that you can say, because there's obviously no DNA, we can't, you know, really get any of that nowadays, but... Um, yeah, they do have some, but it's really weak. It's really, really yeah. weak. What they, I mean, at one point they claimed they did have DNA uh, from cigarettes that Cooper smoked on the plane. But they, uh, ironically, those cigarettes are now officially lost. Mm-hmm. But they tried to get one suspect to confess by claiming to him that they had the DNA from those cigarettes, and he wasn't getting taken in by that. But uh, you're right, really no DNA here to speak of. Yeah. So now you you talk about the letters. You talk about um, six letters. Um, uh, so maybe explain that and what you think about uh, what's behind these letters. Well, there was, there was letters in this case. There's six that are known. Um, some of them are very short. Uh, one one actually consisted of letters that, that were cut out from a Playboy magazine. It would say the system that beats the system. Um, and they would always be signed D.B. Cooper, uh, uh, you know, just real short. Uh, one said that, that, that he was up in the gray, you know, uh, just watched the gray cup up in Canada. And, uh, you know, they were just really short kind of cryptic, cryptic type letters. And but the, the interesting about those letters is he always signed them D.B. Cooper. And as we know, that wasn't even the name he gave. It was Dan Cooper. So to me, I always felt like, yeah, these guys are just copycats. So they're just trying to trying to cash in on the fame or something like that. But the only two letters of any note that came from someone claiming to be Cooper were what is known as letters number five and letters number six. And these are both typewritten letters. And they're about three, three well, I think uh, number six is about two paragraphs long and, and five's longer than that. But uh, they're both, you know, pretty long. They were obviously, like I said, typewritten. And um, this comes up with that suspect, Robert Rackstraw, which I know you had Thomas Colbert on the show a while back with his suspect, and he had a lot of publicity behind that. 
And this is what, that's actually what brought the letters to my focus because he claimed in his research that uh, his suspect, Robert Rackstraw, was embedding codes in letters number five and six. And that caught my attention because when you read both of those letters the way they should be read, they're polar opposites from each other. Letter number five says it's signed D.B. Cooper, number one. And it says, uh, my life's been full of hate. I'm sorry about what I did. And, you know, and it says, I only have a few months to live. You know, it's this real apologetic. I'm going to die anyway, but you'll never catch me. But it's not taunting at all. It's more apologetic. And then number six is actually signed, not D.B. Cooper, but it says, it's signed by a rich man. And he's using language in this like Ted Braden would use. He's talking about, tell the lackey cops to stop looking for me. And it's, it's, uh, and and uh, and by the way, DB, he says DB Cooper is not my real name. You know, he, so he's already setting a precedent there. Like, you're, you know, that's not even my real name. I'm like, you know, it's it's more of a taunting. He goes, I've just been back from the Bahamas. It's a more taunting letter, but the most interesting part of it is is the way that he is insulting them. You know, he goes, uh, you know, I'm, he says I'm I'm smarter than the lackey, the lackey cops, and all this kind of stuff. And then he says. Uh, trying to go back and read it but he he uses the term of i had to do something with the skills that that uncle taught me and um and you know that's he's abbreviating uncle sam and that's something that ted braden would do because ted braden wrote an article in a magazine called ramparts magazine which was this anti-establishment magazine back in the the late 60s and the uh the military editor there was an an ex-vietnam soldier named donald duncan and he was a high-ranking guy. I think he refused a promotion and wound up leaving Vietnam. And he came out. He came, and then when he got back to the states, he became uh, one of the leading. Uh, I mean, not proponents, but opponents of the Vietnam War, and was, you know, really would speak out against it a lot. And uh, he did an article on Ted Braden about his background and him going to fight as a mercenary. So, uh, you know, Donald Duncan writes the forward. And then the part that Ted Braden writes about his experience of leaving Vietnam and going to fight in the Congo, you can really pick up, you know, that, that, you know, Ted, Ted Braden's style, he's talking about chair bound commandos in Saigon calling the shots. You know, he had this really uh, artistic way of insulting people, you know, cause he was so intelligent. He would really think before he would speak from the people I met that, that knew him. But when he writes in there, you can see how he would, he would love to uh, insult people and you see that in, in D.B. Cooper letter number six. So uh, reading that just brought out to me that even more that that it was him. I mean, he uh, let me read it real quick. It says it starts out. Uh, this was written on March 28, 1972. Obviously, this is a few months after the skyjacking in November 1971. It says, gentlemen, this letter is to let you know that I am not dead but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. This is just how dumb the government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. I had to do something with the experience. This is very important here. Uncle taught me. So here I am, a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I went out of the system and saw a way through good old Unk. There he is, abbreviating Uncle Sam again. He's just calling him Unk, U-N-K. It says, now, it says, I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame duck leaders. Now it's Uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell your lackey cops, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. 
sincerely a rich man. So when you read the Ramparts article, you see this same pattern of insulting, you know, where D.B. Cooper here is calling him lackey cops. D.B. Cooper's not my real name. And uh, he's talking about using the skills that are here. He says experience that uncle taught him. What he means is you taught me to be this incredible soldier, but now I can't be in the military anymore. How can I go make money with these skills, such as jumping out of a plane in bad weather in 1971 with a $200,000 ransom? He's telling you right here in letter number six that I'm Ted Braden. I'm doing this because you taught me how to be this incredible soldier where you taught me how to jump out of a plane and I got really good at it. And now I thought now I with due to my own ingenuity figured out a way to make money with it, which is hijacking a plane with a briefcase bomb and jumping out with the money. So uh, that really, once I went back and, and, you know, I would compare even little things when Donald Duncan does the forward to the ramparts article, which came out, I think it was uh, October of 1967. So this is way before the Cooper skyjacking. Uh, he, he mentions that Braden had this huge penchant for asking for favors from people that he didn't really know that well. Uh, and he was always trying to ask for money, usually the favor would be in terms of monetary. So uh, he comes in with Donald Duncan and said, you know, basically asking for money, and he comes in with the greeting, how you doing, uh, good old Dunk? He calls him Dunk, which Donald Duncan never went by the nickname Dunk. It's just Braden with short names like that. Well, that sounds a lot like Unk, U-N-K. And that's just what Braden would do. He wanted you to think that he, you, you had a better relationship with you than you really did because he was going to hit you up for money. So reading that just really honed in uh, that that's who it is. And it makes and it, it also tells you, you know, I'm alive. I'm writing this letter to tell you I'm alive, which means what? It means the first five letters are not the real D.B. Cooper because if they were, he wouldn't need to tell you again that he was still alive. So... Uh, just comparing those two is, is one of the best pieces I think there are. It's just Ted's personality comes out in that D.B. Cooper letter six more than any. Um, and also the letter was mailed from Jacksonville, Florida. And Braden had a lot of ties to, to Florida. He had friends in Miami. He uh, got divorced from his second wife in uh, uh, Hardy County, Florida, not real far from Jacksonville. And also he was a long-haul trucker. Uh, would have easily been in Florida for a, for a myriad of reasons. So that's just even you know, bolsters that even more, I think. True, and I've got to say this because it's coming to my mind, and I think if it's coming to my little uneducated mind, I'm sure it's coming to people's minds that are much more um, complex thinkers than I am. When we want to believe in something, when we want to resolve something, it's very, and somebody gives us some information, it's very easy for us to fall into a situation where we do everything we can to make it fit. And there's a lot of reference in this, in, in, the, in your conversation about how that's like, um, that's, that's like Ted would have done, but we don't mm-hmm. really, but we don't really know that. We're just doing a, an analysis of somebody's character that we don't really understand. We don't really know whether he would have done that and whether D.B. Cooper would have done that. It's quite circumstantial, superficial. How would you respond to that if people were to ask you that? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in full agreement of that. Because um, we, we, you'll hear this, and you know, you know, people will talk on these message boards, like, you know, they'll always admit first, Ted Braden is fascinating. Even if he, and I even say this, even Ted Braden is, is not T.B. Cooper, and I cannot prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe he is, but even if he's not, his story is so fascinating that what we do know for a fact. So it was definitely warranted telling the story, but people will say this, 
well, yeah, this is a lot of great stuff about Ted Braden, but it doesn't put him on the plane. It's mm. like what you're saying. It doesn't put his body on that plane. And it, it is all circumstantial. But that, but every suspect in this case, and I know them all, and I know them all very well, no one can put their suspect on the plane. So to even make that statement is kind of redundant because no one can. It is a completely circumstantial case, just like the Zodiac. Um, it's all circumstantial. But I think that Braden has the best set of circumstantial evidence. Uh, you know, one of the things against Ted Braden was he doesn't really have – I can't even push him, put him in Washington State uh, in that year. Um, mm. I know he worked for a, a trucking company called Consolidated Freightways that, were, that was based out of Vancouver, Washington. I also know that he had a good friend that was an ex-Vietnam uh, uh, commando with him that lived in Vancouver, Washington, really close to the drop zone that also had a private plane that he flew. So that guy could be involved, but I, I don't know for sure. Uh, but, um, you know, I do know and that Ted Brain's wife at the time believed it was him. You know, he wasn't home on Thanksgiving Eve, but you'd be shocked about how many men that were not. But you're right. It's all circumstantial with Cooper. So uh, you have to just get, and I don't think we'll ever know for sure. I don't think we'll ever, ever know 100% who he was. And if we if we if we think about um, Ted Braden and his his intelligence and the way that he'd already got into low level, well, I say low level crime. Everything was money orientated. So you could see that there might be that you might have a, a bit of a step up in order to get more funds, but that's quite a step up, isn't it? That's that's from um, the black market and getting involved in in lower level crimes to get more money is very different than holding a plane hostage and jumping out. And actually, nobody saw anybody jump out of the plane. Is that right? Uh, no, no one. No one actually saw him depart the plane. Um, you know, with that, that opens up to lots of conspiracy there. Some people, you know, some people mm. go as even far as saying that D.B. Cooper never existed at all, and it was the entire flight crew that that that, that, that came up with the caper, and they were all going to split the money. Um, that's good that's idea. On the really far spectrum, you know. Um, and others think that that uh, he simulated jumping over Washington State by thumping the by jumping up and down on that aft stair to create what they call a pressure bump to make them think that's where he jumped, and then he actually jumped closer to Reno where the plane was was going to land in Reno, Nevada. And they think that maybe he did that, but he'd have to stay on that cold stair, you know, quite a long time before he could jump closer to Reno. But that's also a, a theory out there. Um, it's just to me. It was a really small world as far as guys that could pull that jump off. And going back, that knew a 727 can be jumped. The pilots, like I said, didn't even know that. So you're already getting to a small group of guys to either have the knowledge that could have been done or, mm. or how to do it. And to jump out of a 727, I mean, this is a jet. No one even ever thought of you know, guys jumping out of jets. The only place that they were doing that was in Vietnam uh, over places like Laos because you you know because you could jump out of that plane they weren't suspecting you to you know they would drop cargo and stuff off like that so they were doing jumps like that so that the spe- you know the elite special forces in Vietnam knew you could do it and so it's already putting you into a really small group of men even the sport parachutists at the time knew that it was such a small deal they thought that a guy named Mark Metzler who who talks about DB Cooper a lot um, and, and it was jumper during all these years said that we thought it was one of our guys. We thought it was one of the better sport jumpers. And, uh, he goes, we knew it'd just be a matter of time. So we found out who it was because he goes, even then in the early seventies, there weren't that many really, you know, skydiving was really not that big of a sport then. So they knew somebody that would do something as crazy as jumping out of a jet could have only been a handful of people, even on their end. So mm-hmm. when you take that, you know, this small group of men 
who would have known how to do it, whose personality matches the most. It, you don't have that many options left. You really don't. You're, you're, you're down to a very few people. So I think that bodes well in Braden's favor. So do we know uh, what happened to Ted Braden after this? Like, where, where, where did he end up? Well, after, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a really strange area. So um, he got picked up fighting in the Congo, and uh, after he deserted from Vietnam, he was put in Fort Dix, uh, and he was looked after by you know, a, a, a captain named Hank Birch, which, is, which I know really well, his part's in the book, and he talks about how Braden was put in a cell. He had a, he had a TV in his cell. He had a cigar with a wood tip, which was strictly forbidden at Fort Dix, um, so Ted was getting special treatment there and he winds up getting let out of Fort Dix because they claimed they couldn't, didn't have enough MPs to secure the courtroom when they were going to court martial him, which is unheard of with Fort Dix. It's not, you know, he obviously, somebody was protecting him from very high up and they wound up giving him a general discharge when he was, you know, he deserted the battlefield. He's going to get a general discharge and he even balked at getting the general discharge because they wouldn't give him a, a special watch back. And I don't know what that watch could do. My guess is it had an altim- altimeter on it because he was a jumper and it was an early model of that. It's just a guess. But, you know, he was being protected there. So after he gets out, you know, he has to sign up. He has to sign something that says he can never join the military again. You know, we're giving you this deal, Ted, but you can't ever join the military again. So after that, he does the Ramparts article in, in 67. And it's really there's really nothing known about him until about 1971 where he marries his third wife. And I talked to his, one of his stepdaughters and said that uh, I think it was in 1972 they were, uh, this is all, that's after the Cooper jump, they were living in uh, Chicago in a penthouse apartment. And uh, they, her mom had a Mercedes, like a newer model Mercedes. Ted had a Mercedes. He always loved Mercedes. He had one when he was stationed in Europe that they would drive to skydiving meets and stuff like that. And she told me, she goes, I always wondered how he had all this extra money because she said, my mom didn't work. We always wondered how he had this kind of money as a long-haul trucker. You know, long-haul truckers don't live in penthouses and drive Mercedes. She's like, we always seem to have more money than what he should have been making, and she never could really figure it out. I mean, obviously, people would call through the years inquiring about Ted being D.B. Cooper, but I thought that was really interesting. But during that time, we don't know much. We just know that after sometime in the 70s, he gets caught for a couple big capers, like I mentioned, the one where he stole the meat, which which was a pretty big heist. And then he gets in trouble again on a federal deal, and I'm not real sure exactly what he did, and he was incarcerated in Pennsylvania, again, for a really short time. I mean, he should have, I mean, for the meat theft, he should have been gone away for like 20 years because it was a substantial, you know, dollar amount of meat that he stole, and he gets out again. You know, somebody else is letting him out. It's like, you know, when you go back to the D.B. Cooper thing, not only did he know he could survive that jump because he was so good, but he probably knew he had to get out of jail free card by either being friends with John Singlob or what he knew, because from what I'm told by some other Vietnam guys, not only did Ted Braden have the goods about some illegal stuff that was going on over Vietnam, namely drug running, uh, but he had goods on goods on what they were doing globally. Uh, you know, so they didn't want him talking. That's for sure. How, why they didn't just kill him. I don't know. Maybe he had some kind of insurance policy out there and said, hey, I got a friend. If I wind up dead, he's going to put a package in the mail. I don't know, but he was being protected from high up. That's what we know. And, you know, D.D. Cooper was calm. Um, you know, Richard Floyd McCoy pulled off a similar skyjacking. He was a, a Vietnam Green Beret on his first story. He had three tours in Vietnam. And if you read the detail of that, and I, and I retell it in the book, 
what happened to Richard Foreman Coyne, this guy had guts, too. I mean, he had just got something barely short of maybe a Medal of Honor in Vietnam. I think it was a Silver Star for – he was a helicopter pilot, but really gutsy guy. But he pulls off a similar skyjacking. He's successful, but he's a nervous wreck in doing it. He's putting on makeup. He's you know easily noticed. Um, he left his hijacking instructions in the lobby, and someone ha- and it literally said hijacking instructions written on the outside of the envelope. The person just didn't look at it, or it would have been over right then. He goes on the plane, and says, "Anyone want to claim this?" But that's a good example of what I mean. Even a a, a, a Trevi trained combat guy would have done. But Jimmy Cooper was calm as a cucumber. I mean, this is a rare person. Even if you're dealing with people that were in the special forces under combat, Jimmy Cooper was unusually calm. Why? I mean. Only a Ted Braden that comes along once in a lifetime could have could fit that mold. That's you know that's the case I try to make. Hmm. I wonder, but why why would he continue stealing like the meat and doing things if he had all that money? Like, was he into the caper? Is he into theft? Do you think? I think he liked the excitement of it. I mean, who knows if he you know he might have lost part of that money on the way down. Maybe that's why some of it wound up on the Tina Bar when Brian Ingram found it in 1980. I don't know. That's all pure speculation. I mean, maybe they caught up with them and they said, hey, Ted, we know it's you, at least some higher-ups. Because, you know, there does seem to be a, a kind of a cover-up part of this. And I know a lot of people immediately go to go conspiracy if they can't explain their, their guy 100% or whatever. But uh, there is a lot of strange stuff with this case. What's down is up and up is down. Uh, they lost the cigarettes, like I said. And just really strange things that, that go on at the, at the FBI level. It's like some people there, it's really high up, probably do know who it was. And I think maybe they caught up with them and got the rest of the money back. And then the FBI could have planted that money on the Tina bar just to to make people think that he did die. That's just one theory among Mm. many. Where where did Braden end up? Do we know? Is he dead now? Or did he? He's he's dead now. He, uh, he died in 2007. He was cremated. Not so a lot of fanfare, uh, you know, he was still married to his third wife, but they were pretty much estranged. You know, they kind of saw each other on again, off again, never officially got divorced. According to the family, she was, you know, scared of him and never really had the money to go file. And he didn't want to get divorced. They were still, he was still living in Pennsylvania. And his wife, was, his third wife was still living in Pennsylvania, but on the other side of the state. So kind of just, you know, kind of died in obscurity in a, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, no deathbed confession I ever heard of. Mm. But, um, you know, really strange end note to a fascinating guy. Yeah, fascinating. So now the book is available everywhere on Amazon and all that. Do you have a website as well or a place that you send people to find out? Yeah, I do have a website. It's drewbeasonbooks.com. It's all together. It's drewbeasonbooks.com. It's B-E-E-S-O-N. Okay. Well, we'll put that on our website as well. So uh, how long did it take you to put this book together? It sounds like a lot of research. Yeah, it took about four months, you know, getting a hold of some of these people and uh, getting your stories down and, and finding a lot of pictures of them. That's, that was a big part of it. Uh, and going back, that's one of the, you know, when they gave descriptions of D.B. Cooper on the plane, you know, heights can vary a little bit and all that. We, you know, we know we're starting with a white male, but one of the most overriding features of everyone that, that, that remembered him from the plane flight said he had a uh, he had dark skin. You know, they, they described it as a word used back then with swarthy appearance, you know, like a really dark skinned. Um, and I have a photo of Ted with his mother and taken in 1975. And you can kind of see Ted's skin tone versus his mother. And it wasn't that Ted Braden was, you know, Native American or anything like that. I think it was just from being out in the sun a lot or something. But you can see how dark his skin is 
versus his mom in that 1975 photograph that I was so lucky to get from his nephew. And uh, that was pretty telling, I thought. You know, I showed it to another uh, a guy I know, Dar- um, Darren Schaefer, who has a great podcast called The Cooper Vortex, and it's all D.B. Cooper stuff. And uh, he saw that photo, and he was just, wow, he couldn't believe it. You know, it just looks so much like the sketch. That's why I put those pictures on the front of the book. But, uh, you know, I did you know, about four months. Wow. How, how are people, when you're when you're researching something like this, in an old case, when you get a hold of people like, you know, ex-wife or someone involved, are are they pretty open to talking, or do they kind of, t- does it take a while to get them to talk to you? It can take a while. I mean, his cousin talked to me quite a bit, and she had, you know, that one photograph I start with him from World War II she had, which was amazing. And she said, yeah, we always knew he was in the CIA, but, you know, she had a lot of good stories. And she goes, it would not surprise me if he was Dee Cooper. You always hear that. And then some people start talking like a stepdaughter, and then they just stop. And it's weird because I'm never, I never push anyone too hard. You know, she starts out, gives me a lot of great information. She goes, you know, my older sister would probably remember more. And I go, well, I'd love to talk to her. Please set that up. And then I wait a couple of weeks, and it never happens. I think somebody's just... It's this weird thing that goes on where they just say you just get shut down after a certain point, and then I just you know, start feeling happy I got what I got. But you know, a lot of people are like, "Yeah, we've heard that about him, and it wouldn't surprise me." And then other people like Hank Birch, when he was overseeing Braden at Fort Dix, became fascinated with him too, and has been researching him ever since. And he helped me a lot. His daughter does research too with him, and he became, he became just fascinated by the guy. So he was a great source because he when he first encountered him he was just like wow i gotta find out more like everywhere he ever went you know let's just see how much we can dig up yeah so where to next what do you what do you what are you going to work on next now that this is done well it'll be another uh, one that we'll probably do a uh, show with michael again because it's going to be the non-canonical zodiac crimes it's going to be the next book well there you go uh, there must be letters involved in that too <laughs> yeah, there's some for sure well some ciphers <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're a letter guy. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Well, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time and, and doing the book. And uh, like I said, we'll have it up on our website as well as uh, we'll link your website too so people can find you that way. And um, we'll go from there. So, again, um, our guest has been uh, Drew Hurst Beeson. And uh, the book we're talking about is Paratrooper of Fortune. And that's the story of. Ted B. Braden, who was the Vietnam commando, CIA operative, Congo mercenary, and just maybe D.B. Cooper. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go! our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com.
operation has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.